put a title on your graph, annotate the important things, label your axes, pick appropriate visual encodings. And if you do all those things we're taught in elementary school, people will understand your visualization. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. So this is Enrico today without Moritz. I'm going to do a solo show. And before we start, let me remind you that we finally started our crowdsourcing initiative, which means that Data Stories is now completely fully funded by our listeners. So if you enjoy what we are doing here, you're joined listening to Data Stories, please consider helping us with this, you can go to patreon.com slash data stories. You'll find our page and you can pledge some amount in on Patreon. How does it work? Let me explain that in a few in a few words. So you can basically set up a certain amount, a few dollars that you pledge to pay for every time we publish a new episode. And typically we publish two episodes per month. So you should think of that amount multiplied by two uh, for every every month. So once again, if you enjoy what we are doing and you want to support us, please consider going on Patreon and pledge some amount for us. And now we have another special guest. It's my pleasure to have Michelle Borkin on the show. She's a a professor from Northeastern University and uh, one of my favorite researchers in visualization. And we're going to talk about a lot of interesting topic. I'm really excited to, to have you on the show, Michelle. Welcome on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm blushing from the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so we normally ask uh, um, our guests to introduce themselves. So can you give us a little bit of information about your, 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 your background? What's your current position? What are your interests? And then we can dive right into the main topics. Sure thing. I'm an assistant professor at Northeastern University in Boston in the College of Computer and Information Science. Uh, I am interested in data visualization, and that's my area of expertise. And I work across disciplines and do a lot of applied applications across the sciences and astronomy and physics and medical imaging. And most people from my background don't know I'm an astrophysicist by training <laughs> and an avid amateur astronomer. And my PhD is actually in applied physics, but fell madly in love with visualization early on and have slowly drifted across fields and boundaries. Yeah. Perfect. So I, I have to start with asking you, how does an astronomer become a data visualization <laughs> expert and researcher? <laughs> That's one, one of the many aspects I love about your background. And uh, yeah, I mean, it looks to me that if this can attract a person from astronomy and convince a person to go from looking at stars to looking at visualizations, it's a really good sign for our field. So <laughs> 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 how did this happen? No. 
<laughs> it's it's interesting. I'll first say, uh, coffee conversations, coffee breaks at like the IEEE Viz conference. It is amazing how many people in our community have backgrounds in other fields. Yeah, psychology, engineering. You know, other I know other people in physics and astronomy. So I'm not as you know unique in that regards. But certainly, my switch has been quite dramatic in recent. How did I get from astrophysics to computer science. It started when I was an undergraduate. I was all set. I went to Harvard. I was doing a true astrophysics undergraduate honors thesis program, working with Alyssa Goodman, who's a professor of astronomy at Harvard. And it was one of those serendipitous instances where Alyssa was invited to be a guest at a workshop. It was in uh, fall of 2015, if I remember correctly. It was in, you know, when I was an undergraduate as a junior. Alyssa goes to this NIH NSF workshop and it was sponsored. I should pull up the names. It had people like Chris Johnson, Tamara Munzner, Hans Pierre Pfister, uh, all <laughs> gathered, sponsored by NSF and NIH to talk about grand challenges in visualization. Mm. I've heard others refer to this jokingly as the how computer science has failed the sciences meeting, <laughs> but it is amazing how many projects and collaborations have come out of that series of workshops. Alyssa Goodman was invited to present about challenges in astronomy visualization. It just so happened one of the workshop panelists who was there was Michael Halley, who was from the Surgical Planning Lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And as the story has been told to me by Alyssa Goodman and Michael Halley, Mike was so excited seeing her challenges. And she was talking about radio astronomy and you have these multidimensional data sets and they're not spatial and they don't know how to look at them. And Mike goes running up to her after her talk and was like, we need to talk. They go get a drink. And I don't have it, but Alyssa sketched for me what Mike and Alyssa put on a napkin. And it was all the parallels between astronomy imaging and medical imaging. Mm -hmm. And everything from the image processing, the image registration, the segmentation algorithms, the visualization challenges were nearly identical. So they have this conversation. They come back. I grab coffee at Starbucks with Alyssa. I'm a junior undergraduate trying to figure out my thesis research. And she was telling me, oh, you can study how young stars are ejected from nebula or look at the hierarchical collapse in structure as gas forms on to you know, do star formation. And then we get distracted and she tells me the story about this crazy radiology researcher running up to her after her talk. And I said, that's what I want to do for my thesis. <laughs> I still remember she looks at me like, what? I'm like, no, that's what I'm going to do for my thesis. And I hopped on the M2 shell bus with all the other pre-meds and started trekking over to Brigham and Women's Hospital learning about medical imaging, but then in the process about 3D slicer, ITK, VTK, how you do 3D rendering. And it was it blew my mind and then brought that technology back to the astronomers over at Harvard. And for my undergraduate thesis, did novel research in the IC348 star forming region and Perseus star forming region. And with all these algorithms and image processing tools and 3D visualization techniques from the medical community, we instantly started making these discoveries as hooked. I had submitted applications ago, graduate school in astrophysics, and I retracted my applications because ah, I was wow. so <laughs> in love with the visualization and computer graphics. I said, I don't know what I want to do now and was offered a research position for a couple years uh, at the uh, now rebranded as initially the 
Initiative in Innovative Computing at Harvard to be a research assistant. And Mike Halley said, hey, there's this really great conference happening. It's this thing called IEEE Viz. You should go to that. And they paid for me. It goes IEEE Viz 2006 in Baltimore. And that changed my career. <laughs> I just couldn't believe other people were interested in this and did the same kind of stuff. And <laughs> from then on, it's that slowly started my shift over into visualization. Yeah, the, this is where you got the the Viz fever, <laughs> I guess. Yes, right? exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, that's fantastic. And uh, there are so many connections between science and visualization. And uh, I actually regret that we don't talk maybe even enough about that because uh, scientists are using visualization in so many ways for their work and a lot for communication purposes, of course, in their papers and uh, when they give talks. Every time I had to collaborate or work with some scientists, they are so much interested in how do I actually visualize this and how do I put it in my next paper? They are so much interested in I think that what scientists, the biggest need of a scientist, at least from my experience, is how do I communicate this information to others when I publish them, when I publish this data in a paper or I have to give a presentation. And they seem to have a lot of respect for visualization designers because I guess they understand that it's not easy. It's uh, it's actually very easy to create very bad charts. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So and so speaking of which, maybe we can start our conversation. So there are lots of things that I would like to cover in our in in this episode. I, I don't know how much time we <laughs> if we can cover all of them in the in the scope of one episode, but. Uh, one thing that I really like about your work and probably one of the first pieces of work that uh, I noticed from your side is the is that paper that you published where you compare different visualization to visualize um, medical information coming from the if I could, I don't want to make too many mistakes here, but I guess you were <laughs> you were comparing different ways to visualize arteries in the heart. And, um, yes. and I think that what I have to say, that's one of my favorite papers ever in visualization, because uh, I, I hope I'll try to summarize what you did and you tell me if I get if I get it wrong. But basically, <laughs> okay. so I guess you've been trying to visualize um, data coming from the art and showing particular features of the arteries. And then you realized, oh, but there are different ways I can visualize that. And what I really like is that you have a design space where you have mainly two, two, a combination of two options. One is what uh, color map do I use, and one is the is the classic rainbow color map, and another one is a, is a proper quote unquote proper color map. And then even more interesting from my point of view is that you have a three D representation of the arteries and a sort of flattened version of it that transforms 3D <laughs> into 2D, right? And uh, uh, <laughs> and then you compare these conditions and you find and you find something really interesting. But I don't want to say it, so I, maybe you can describe. <laughs> <laughs> sure, no, that's I don't want to steal your job, but so uh, can, can you can you describe uh, this work maybe a little bit better than me and and yeah and tell the story behind it. 
Yeah, so that was in graduate school. And that was a fantastic project where that work and I have some other publications and work was when I started my graduate program, and I did applied physics and have an expertise in computational fluid dynamics. So I started, I joined this project where there was an established collaboration of physicists uh, at Harvard modeling blood flow through the heart, and then trying to see how they could make that a clinical diagnostic tool or tool to help cardiologists in the hospital to do more effective heart disease diagnostics. So it was fascinating because my first part of that project was how do I represent the fluid dynamic simulation for physicists? But then I realized very rapidly, it was this incredible you know, experience for me. What I realized is the doctors need a completely different visualization. What the physicists need to understand the fluid dynamics completely different set of tasks than what the doctors do. Different environments, different circumstances. So it's this design study to figure out what do the doctors need to see of this data to diagnose a patient. And that's where the flattening came in. I started out with 3D. 3D was conventional for the doctors for state-of-the-art, for looking at this blood flow information in the arteries and looking for areas of heart disease and uh, blocked arteries. But the 3D when I went rounds in the hospital, so I did a true immersion study with the doctors. I, I am so lucky to have great collaborators. And I went on rounds through the cardiology wing, sat on procedures for stent insertion. I watched how they did this with patients. And I noticed 3D had some issues. For instance, it's there's an occlusion problem. You have to interact with the model or have like a movie rotating to see all the data. Also, if a doctor is all in scrubs and they're in a procedure and they need to be looking at this information, if their hands are literally in the patient by their heart, they can't rotate the darn model on the screen. So that was the inspiration for doing something that's 2D and flat and went through many, many, many iterations to get to the final version uh, of this two flattened artery visualization. And the doctors sort of looked at this and they're like, well, I don't know. Even though they helped me design it, we figured out the right layout, how to do the projection. And that led to this user study of understanding the main motive was 3D versus 2D. The color was an interesting side effect where I learned, oh, divergent color map. This is much more appropriate and pick the proper color space. And they're like, no, it has to be rainbow. I'm like, <laughs> but in class, I was taught that we can't do rainbow. And that became a between subjects factor in the study to look at rainbow. And I did not expect the paper to have as much impact as it has on proving <laughs> just how bad rainbow was. So for the short summary of the results was that on average people, participants in the user study I did at Harvard Medical School were less accurate with the 3D representation. It was like about 30 or 40% of the diseased regions they could find in a certain amount of time versus 60%. But then simply changing the color from, and that was with rainbow, and changing it out of rainbow got the accuracy in the 2D up to over 90% accurate in finding all the diseased regions. And that, I love that result. <laughs> yeah. It was a great, clean result. Yeah. Yeah, it's just perfect. I think if I remember correctly, I remember attending your talk back then and you had like, so we have an improvement with the color. We have an improvement with 2D versus 3D. But when we put these yep. two together, it's even more. It's a compound effect, yeah. right? And uh, and if I remember correctly, so tell me if I'm wrong. Another thing that struck me as really important is that you've been testing this with medical 
students. And, mm-hmm. uh, and if I remember correctly, they had to identify issues in the arteries, right? So yes. this literally means that being more accurate means finding or not finding important issues in a person's artery, right? So I was like, yes, that's an example where this is clearly impactful, clearly important, <laughs> right? It's just, it's not just a number. There's people's life behind this study, right? And I don't, I don't know, in retrospect, it may look trivial, but it's not at all. <laughs> No, I remember after I gave that presentation for the paper, there was a lot of things on Twitter to the effect of the rainbow color map is killing people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, but it is true that Viz has a huge impact on scientific discovery and in the medical field, how you present the data to a doctor, be it how you annotate a radiology x-ray scan to presenting patient data, it could be text data or data from a chart, has a big impact on how a doctor diagnoses a patient and if they're going to have a false positive, false negative, or miss something really important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I would love to see more of that. Um, unfortunately, I don't know why there's, uh, I don't know. It's, I have to say that uh, for some reason, it's hard to find studies out there that shows an impact, such an, imp- can I say important impact? I don't know if it makes sense, but (laughs) work that it's clearly related to something important in the world, right? So this is saving people's life, right? And uh, it's not necessarily a criticism. I I think it's really hard to find, to ideate this kind of studies and find yourself into this kind of situation. But I would love to see more of that because I think this is where visualization shines from, at least from the research point of view, right? When you, when you can demonstrate that by using proper design, visualizations that are properly designed, you can literally save people's life, at least in principle. I think that's, that's big. (laughs) No, it is big. I'm very excited because I've reopened that project and the NSF was lovely enough to give me some money to do this through the Smart Connected Health Program. And my uh, graduate student, Aditya Pandey, in collaboration with my collaborator, Jeffrey Young at the Brigham over in Boston, we're looking at arteries in the brain now and looking at, and it's it's a lot harder. (laughs) It's a lot more complicated with, you know, it's different physics and different shapes of the arteries. And we're right now actively working to look at artery projection techniques, 2D versus 3D. We're looking at all sorts of other interesting perception, uh, perception and cognition principles, but we're opening up the book on that. And also looking at that important step where I left off with the heart artery work of, okay, you can diagnose a patient and find something interesting and you might be able to prove 2D is more efficient and accurate. But then how do you take that to the next step? How you do the surgical planning or how you link it back to other cases where the 3D visualization is essential? Sure. Yep. And that's a lot of our current work now is how do you visually link and represent effective abstract or 2D representations in conjunction with and brushing and linking and the like with 3D rendering. So that's my current active project. Sure, sure. Well, just to clarify that, I don't think that 3D is always bad or even the rainbow color map (laughs) is always bad. I think there are very few sweeps generalizations one can make in visualization. Exactly. (laughs) Um, A lot of people think I'm... 
a lot of people think I'm anti 3D. I'm like, no, oh, no, yeah, 3D is yeah. great. I do a lot of 3D imaging. It's oh, really yeah, absolutely. important. Yeah, I, I would love to see more really good ones, right? Really good yep. 3D visualizations. So, and um, I want to switch gear a little bit because there is another piece of work that you are famous for, and I want to make sure that we have enough time to cover it because I I, I suspect we'll need a little bit more time to discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> so another very popular piece of research that you've done in recent years is the one about memorability. And you published a, a few papers, I remember the first time when you published your first paper on memorability, it went really big around um, the VIS conference and uh, there was the famous dinosaur meme that you can talk about. Oh, dinosaurs. No dinosaurs. (laughs) So maybe you can explain that briefly. So what is visualization research on memorability? I mean, we could cover 10 episodes with that, but yeah, let's see what we can do. Oh, I can give you the short summary. It's interesting because a big part of my work is visualization for scientists and working with doctors. But my other love and passion is evaluation Mm -hmm. studies. I wish I had taken psychology as an undergraduate because I think it's fascinating how people see and perceive color and shape and how these low-level perceptual and cognitive principles can impact how you see a graph and how you do visualization. And that comes up all the time in my other work. For example, the artery visualization work that was you know, a scientific application, but also a perceptual study. The memorability work taps into that for me, where it was extreme, in-depth, big data evaluation studies. The memorability uh, high level is thinking through, we know gestalt principles, we know color theory, but what happens if we start looking at the impact of higher level other cognitive principles? And in this case, it's sort of memorability. And one question you can ask is what makes a visualization memorable or what makes it recognizable is another term to use uh, or easy to recall. These are all these low level memory principles. That work was a tangent. I never, ever expected my trajectory on visualization, cognition, and memorability to turn into the body of publication and knowledge it has become. (laughs) Also started at a Viz conference. It was in Seattle. I think that was 2012. And I had just gotten into visualization evaluation. I was sitting in the back row in the evaluation session. And there were a few other papers about visualization, cognition, and memorability. And I remember saying in the background, I just happened to be sitting next to a few very senior people in our field. I will not say their names. And I sat there listening to them rip apart the papers <laughs> in the session, completely destroy them. And I sat there with my jaw dropped gawking at the senior researchers. And part of it was how smart they were, Mm -hmm. that they could easily pick up on things in the study design or the data sets or the stimuli that I didn't even think of. And that was like, whoa, and started making me question studies and what we know about visualization cognition. So that happened. And then one month later, as a special seminar at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, and it was hosted as Hans Pierre Pfister, Alyssa Goodman, and Bernice Rogge, all about data visualization and the interface of algorithms and computers and people, and happened to meet Odd Oliva. And she is an expert in computer vision, perception, and cognition uh, over at MIT. 
And it was amazing learning from her, her studies on visual, you know, her work on vision and saliency models, all for natural images. So then the question was, well, what happens if we start looking at memory and visualizations, taking this very rigorous approach that the cognitive psychologists have been using on this other work? And the work to date that all of us, we have a whole project called MassViz, massviz.mit.edu. In this large collaboration, we have looked at how do people recognize features? This becomes important, for example, with applications of teaching. If you want someone to understand and remember things, it could be marketing, it could be, but I always make the argument that even if I'm publishing a image, a visualization in a journal paper, I want someone to remember it, but I also want them to understand it and understand the right things. Measuring visualization comprehension is really hard. I've Mm -hmm. done lots of pilot Turk studies. It's really hard. So the memorability was just a baby step in the right direction towards comprehension. Okay. So can you briefly describe how, how, what does it take to to study memorability? So I think <laughs> one, one interesting aspect of the way you've been doing this is that you've been testing how people... Um, so I think you have a very large set. You create a large library of visualizations of different types and you have different kind of categories. And you've been exposing people to large sets of these charts and visualizations. And then you try to see... Uh, how memorable these are and then try to figure out why some are more memorable than others. And I don't remember exactly how many images you have in your database, but I think it's really, really large. It's what, in the order of thousands or so? Yeah, almost 6,000 visualizations. And that was that the, all the memorability work, I call it a labor of love. That it was so much work to build this data set, which is why we're so happy to put it online and make it available to everybody. Almost 6,000 visualizations scraped from news media websites, government websites. We went through visually to get some infographic visualizations, uh, uh, nature. And we went through some journal publications to build this massive database of visualizations. And the approach here was a lot of the studies to date had focused on small data sets or things people made. And we were trying to do a different approach where we want visualizations in the wild or from mm-hmm. the wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Natural ones, we haven't t- you know, messed around with them. We haven't played with them. But yeah, it was six, almost 6,000 visualizations. And then we crowdsourced that to sort it into, is it a single plot versus multiple? What type of graph is it? Is it a bar chart? Is it a pie chart? Went all the way down. And then we did a subset of a few hundred where we manually annotated and painted each image to say where are the axes, where are the mm-hmm. labels, where's the mm-hmm. title, where's the pie chart and the annotations on the pie chart. And it was a team of wonderful students, including Azalea Vo and Chelsea Yee, myself, other grad students and postdocs, folks at Harvard to build and annotate the data set. So all this metadata is included in the in the public data set that you created, right? Yes. Fantastic. All of it's there. So maybe we should link this in the show notes, but maybe you can briefly mention what how how does one find this page? What what's the title of the web? Does the website as a name or something? Yep, it's uh, massviz, M-A-S-S, 
V I Z. Oh my gosh, I know. Like, I'm, I'm gonna misspell it. It's yeah, okay. mass M A S S V I S. We had an argument over Z R S. M A S S V I S dot M I T dot E D U is the address for our project. And we have there all this huge database, which we then used in our series of papers to do these experiments to understand what visual features people attend to mm-hmm. and remember. Mm-hmm. And all the results of our studies are online. Mm -hmm. It turns out my big takeaway after our series of papers Mm -hmm. is put a title on your graph, annotate the important things, label your axes, pick appropriate visual encodings. And if you do all those things we're taught in elementary school, people will understand your visualization. Don't make it cluttered. And then the other piece of it is don't be afraid to highlight things with color, you know, appropriate use of color, but, you know, color helps images and icons when used appropriately can help people remember the information and draw their attention in good ways. There's a lot of interesting design principles. Yeah, perfect. So I really like that because there are, there are a number of guidelines that people can can read and use and remember when they are developing their own projects. And that's that's really useful. And it also reminds me a very interesting idea that I, I think it's something that I've been rediscovering over the years is that I think we as visualization experts and designers, we tend to focus a lot on how to actually encode the data, right? But all these contextual elements are as important as the encoding part, right? So a good title, Absolutely. a good legend, a good pair of axes, and good annotations. We, I mean... I, I think I've been teaching visualization for quite a number of years now, and I think only very, very recently I started introducing the problem of annotations, right? <laughs> and, uh, but <laughs> annotations are incredibly important because they basically guide you, guide the reader's attention into what is important. So all this context, well, it looks to me that part of the results that you, you obtain from your research is um, kind of like corroborating this idea that contextual elements matter a lot, right? Exactly, exactly. Providing context and effectively communicating your message, these are all really important. And in the second paper we wrote in the series about visualization, recognition, and recall, I even in the conclusion made sure we put in quotations from existing design guidelines, including many from Tufty's books to say, look, this has been said and here's the reason why and you should really listen to these design guidelines. Perfect. <laughs> so and uh, so I think there is, a, there is a somewhat technical question that I always wanted to ask you. I hope it's appropriate okay. for the podcast. Let's try not to make it too long, but I'm curious about it. So what's the difference okay. between, so it looks to me, that you can memorize two di- at least two different things. You can memorize the chart itself, how it appears, the shape, right? The graphical yes. part of it. But you can also memorize somewhat independently the content and the message, right? Yes. So did you find, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not even sure what to ask you, but I, I think what is the difference between the two? And did you find anything in your studies that f- that actually highlights this, the difference between these two things, right? Because I can remember the shape of the graph, but don't remember what the graph is about, right? 
And what is the difference there? <laughs> What's happening is it taps into sort of the dual process or dual coding theory, where this is an established concept that when we receive information, we have two channels, one for visual information and one for semantic or text or verbal information. And these are processed and stored in different parts of our brain. And this is the case where the visual is much lower level. Again, think sort of gestalt principle of pop-outs and shape grouping. Your brain can easily pick up shape and remember shape really well and clusters of shape. So that's sort of one piece. That's the, okay, is the trend line in that bar chart going up or down? And then the other part of your brain takes in the semantic information. And it's a different channel for processing of what was the title and what was the subject of this visualization. And this is where it gets interesting, where you have these two things in the ideal well-designed visualization. These should be complementary and enforce one another. And that semantic information should be there to help you remember what is the subject of this visualization. And then if you remember the trend lines going up, then the shape part, then you're like, oh, I remember that. And that's sort of where we also saw human recognizable objects coming into play. Because if you had a label or even colors, colors relating appropriately, like a graph about water being blue is going to help you remember, oh, blue, this must yeah. be something about water or the yeah. environment. So yeah. the ideal set of design principles lets you have the two channels enforcing one another to help you. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this reminds me, <laughs> we could go on forever, but <laughs> I think that's that's another overlooked issue in visualization that what is the semantic value of the encoding that you're using, right? So some colors yeah. are clearly linked to some semantics, some shapes remind you of something. So, right, yeah, we, we could record a whole new <laughs> episode yeah. only about that. Um, but maybe you can briefly mention the story, the funny story about the dinosaur. <laughs> Uh, so the dinosaur, <laughs> That's a, funny one. a quick comment on the last uh, concept. I really think there are so many studies to be had and so much work in this space. Sure. And even this year at Viz, I was excited to see a lot of papers all about text importance and semantics that I encourage <laughs> folks in the community to do more research in this area because oh, yeah. there's a lot to be done. Absolutely. The dinosaur story. <laughs> the di. I what happened for anyone who is not at Viz or has not read my the papers we put out, it just so happens that some of the most memorable visualizations in our data set came from a couple scientific journal papers about dinosaurs and evolution of dinosaurs. <laughs> and these we had lots of images and lots of animals in our data set, but these particular ones, somehow people like dinosaurs and dinosaurs are unique. They don't look, you know, a monkey and a cow and a dog and a cat might start to blur together over time, but a dinosaur sticks out. And in a lot of the papers and presentations that my collaborators and I give on the subject, we of course are just showing here are the most memorable visualizations and they, of course, have dinosaurs in them. So please, for anyone listening, putting dinosaurs in your visualization <laughs> does not automatically make it better and more memorable. That's not the point. We even have examples in the data set of info, a couple infographics and one news media article where they had dinosaurs in there, but horribly used, not relevant to the visualization at all, and no one remembered them and no one understood <laughs> yeah. them. So I even have quantitative evidence to say... 
this does not <laughs> work out all the time. Don't just randomly put dinosaurs in there. Yeah. <laughs> the, I should just note that the effect of visualizations that we had where people remembered the visualization and had dinosaurs were things like uh, phylogenetic evolutionary diagrams, where the icon of the dinosaur was helping you encode what the species was. So in just say, instead of saying T-Rex, it was picture of a T-Rex with the label T-Rex. And it was enforcing, okay, we care about this dinosaur and we're going to have you remember it more effectively. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, that was, that was um, a funny, funny <laughs> situation. Oh, yes. And don't think I have not received many gag gifts since then of dinosaurs. You should make My cups. husband even bought Mugs. a dinosaur collar for our cat to wear because he thought this was so funny and yeah so embracing the dinosaurs i was wondering if the if the if the main logo of your lab would be a dinosaur and then you would just produce mugs (laughs) (laughs) everyone will remember my lab that's a good idea i'm gonna think about that (laughs) you should do that i mean that was a perfect meme everyone i mean uh, I'm sure many people still remember that. I, I have seen the dinosaur used uh, even after a, a few years. So it's, <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was so much fun. So maybe we can conclude. You can tell us a little bit more about what is happening in your lab. And um, I know you are part of the, how is it called? NUVIS, right? I think it's, yes. a, it's a larger consortium. And uh, so I'm curious to hear what is happening in your lab, what are you focus on, what, what is happening at Northeastern? Sure. So my lab, very exciting. We keep growing, love recruiting new people, and we're working on all sorts of applications for computer decision support systems and medical diagnostics that includes the stroke and artery visualization work. I have a lot of collaborations with psychologists, including some at Northeastern, and we're looking at how to do effective visualization design with low-level evaluation studies. Uh, Also, a growing interest kind of just naturally grew out of all the projects at the same time, interest in timelines, in time series visualization. My PhD student, Misha Schwab, is taking the lead on that. And we're also interested in interaction techniques and how people interact with timelines and 3D visualizations. And I also, a large part of my time is spent on the uh, glue visualization project. Mm -hmm. And Glue is a multi-dimensional data visualization open source project. And it's grew out of work in astronomy, where we had big data sets, and we had 3D and 2D, and we had statistical plots. And they came from different telescopes. And each telescope has their own coordinate system and their own file formats. And the metadata is never in the same format, even though it's supposed to be. And we also have simulations. And we want to compare a simulation of a galaxy to a real observation of a galaxy. And there's been no tool to do that. And so myself and Tom Robitaille, Chris Beaumont, Lisa Goodman, a whole huge collaboration of of us came together to say... Let's make a tool for scientists where they can bridge mm-hmm. this gap between different types of data, dimensions, and visual encodings and representations. So in that work, we're doing a lot of novel brushing and linking methodologies mm-hmm. and selection techniques. And that's a whole other interest of mine is working with scientists on this tool. So that's our whole uh, so that's, Python library. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's uh, all built in Python. Yeah. And it's a, GUI, it's a GUI tool, open mm-hmm. source. Mm-hmm. You can download at gluevis.org. And what makes it unique is we're building it so it's highly customizable. 
you can write your own plugins for your own scientific file format. And we're trying to do novel linking abilities and make it so you can do really easy drag and drop visualizations. My The hardest challenge I have with astronomers, doctors, physicists I work with is this barrier of, okay, I have this data set, but now what do I do with it? And if I want to make even a 3D visualization or I want to do a vector field, how do I do that in a really easy way? And many of these users I call are, some of them are experts, some of them are really novice and they don't want to write Python code to do this or they don't want to write an R. So this is a drag and drop boom, there's your data option for doing this. And it's for those expert users, it's highly customizable and you can control everything with command line and you can do batch processing. So if you don't want to use it as a GUI tool, you don't have to. There are other ways to do this as an expert user. Yeah, this is exactly what I would like to see more development in future years in visualization. I think that we made a lot of progress in terms of creating amazing libraries uh, that people can use mm-hmm. and libraries that make it much easier to create good visualizations. But there are not a lot of tools that people can use just to load the data set and, yeah, and display it. And there are so many domains that require specific tools to do that, right? Exactly. And, um, I don't know why this is not happening at a large scale yet, uh, with a few exceptions, of course. Um, yeah, I would like to see more of that in general. I think it would be really, really useful. Yeah, so Llama and Glue is being developed primarily to support the James Webb Space Telescope, which yeah. is going to be Hubble's you know, follow-on. But the whole thing is being built to be domain agnostic. Sure. And anyone from any domain can use this visualization tool. But I completely agree with you. Yeah. So one last question I want to ask you is regarding, um, so if some of our listeners want to work with scientists and do visualization with scientists, right? So this could be in research settings, but also not necessarily in research, just in general, people who want to work in the area. Maybe people who are passionate about science and passionate about visualization. There are quite a few ones like that out there. So what's the best way to do that? And what are, do you think there are any, can you, pro, can you give us some, some tips on what is the best way to work with a scientist? I think you, you, <laughs> you, you kind of wear bo- both hats, right? Yeah. So, and you've been working with scientists yourself as a visualization researcher. So what's the best way to do that? I think there's a couple. One angle to take and one piece of advice is pick something you're passionate about. I know a lot of folks in the community who have a strong interest in biology or genomics or chemistry. And if you have a passion yourself, so because working with scientists means you have to learn to speak their language. You have to learn about their research. So pick something you're passionate about. And that makes a very big difference. The other piece of advice is scientists, you know, they, a lot of them want to work with visualization experts. They need help in their open-minded and enthusiastic. So a lot of it is a bit of a social networking, date matching kind of game. (laughs) And talk with your local scientists in your departments or at your research institutions and schmooze and people love to talk about their own work, ask them, hey, where are you working on? And you do this enough and you'll find naturally good collaborators and interesting projects to work on. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Michelle. I I think, again, that's another one of those situations where we could go on forever. So (laughs) I think we'll we'll have you on again in, in 
I don't know, after some time, because I, <laughs> I feel like we just start, started scratching the surface of, of oh, many interesting topics. I'm happy you topics. come on anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye, Michelle. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. <laughs>